Welcome to another edition of Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Vegas 15. I'm Paul Shaughnessy, Matt Best on the sticks behind the scenes, and Cody Saftik. Joint, we're in lockdown again, Cody. Remember, like last week, we were like, "What are the rules? What is going on?" Like they brought the hammer down, so we're not. Yeah, so really- two weeks ago, it was red zone, and then last week we were in studio, and then this week it's gray zone. Yeah, which gray zone, where I am. Lockdown. What about where you are? No, I'm in Halton Hills, so I think we're a red zone, like teetering teetering the edge man but things are still uh yeah for the most part open gray but yeah yeah all gray zone is uh no moss so trying to limit my visits to the city sorry can't see my boy paul shaughnessy but this card is just guys that we fade all of the time mm-hmm. problem is some They're of these matchups involve yeah well like, what do you do so let's break her down and get at it but i mean uh definitely a very dangerous week Hundred percent. All right, let's just get right into it. And there's nothing more dangerous than the heavyweight division. We got Curtis Razor Blades taking on Derek Lewis. Curtis Blades is a minus three seventy favorite. Derek Lewis can be had for plus three ten. I took some Curtis Blades when he's like minus two eighty. Added added him to some parlays. Had him parlayed with like uh, Glover and Santos not to go five rounds. We're starting to creep up towards. Minus 400, though, and it's like you start kind of thinking, like, yeah, I think he wins like 80% of the time, but this number is getting closer to reasonable. How does how does Derek Lewis win? Well, Derek Lewis probably knocks his head clean off, and that is how you have beaten Razor Bla- or Curtis Razor Blades in the past. Um, I, I like Blades here, but I think the price is starting to get towards where it should be, which is... 80-20 kind of split here. Derek Lewis is either going to land a big bomb early or really with him, we've seen over the years, he can he, that, that power does translate into rounds two, three. I mean, this is going to go five. If he gets around five, he's probably safe in the clear uh, for, for Blades. But, I mean, I don't know how much value is left on this line, how much meat is left on the bone, but Curtis Blades, I think, wins by wrestling domination. What about you? Yeah, this is at least one of the fights on the card that I feel a little bit better about. I mean, listen, the blueprint has been written time and time again on Derek Lewis. How do you defeat this man? You need to take him down. Because, yeah, he's got that big power. But outside of that, what else does Derek Lewis has? Ground and pound? You know, some big power. Maybe he can carry into later rounds because he doesn't really exert himself in those early portions. But take down defense. I mean, that's always been his kryptonite. And you look at literally the majority, it's something like 85% of his opponents. But Alexei Olenek took him down. Ilya Latifi took him down three times. Logoy Ivanov took him down three times. Daniel Cormier, the GOAT, four times. Alexander Volkov took him down. Marcin Tybura took him down. Shamil Abdurakimov took him down four times. Roy Nelson took him down seven times. Gabriel Gonzaga took him down. Victor Pesta took him down five times. Sean Jordan took him down three times. Juan Potts took him down. Jack May took him down. It's just like it's an entire career if he's getting taken down. The thing is, if he gets back up, maybe he lands that shot. Well, here's the issue with Curtis Blaze is that he does, he does not want to fatigue. He's not one of these guys that, oh, geez, he took him down four or five times, and all of a sudden Lewis is getting up. Now all of a sudden Lewis is making him work, and now he's getting fatigued, and now he's dropping his hands, and now he's going to get clobbered. Like his last fight against Volkov, he took him down 14 times. He shot like almost a heavyweight record. It was like 25 takedown attempts. He just kept at it. And did he start to get tired? Yeah. But Volkov was able to scramble up for the most part. 
Whereas Lewis just lies on the ground for these big lulls and waits for that big explosion. But he doesn't mind spending a few minutes on his back. And for that reason, I, just, I don't love it. He's 35 years old. You don't really see these huge improvements out of him. He's had a bad knee issues. He's had a very bad back notoriously for a long time. His training situation has never really improved. I mean, he's kind of the big dog in his gym and uh, doesn't have a whole lot of training partners. And so then that last thing is like, what about the puncher's chance, Cody? Because you're looking at the number 280. You got it at what, what people jumped on it early. Yeah, that's the move. Now, even so, still got him winning. It is what it is. But we talk about that puncher's chance. And here's the one thing that I'll give Curtis Blake. Who's knocked him out? Francis Ngannou, biggest murderous power puncher of all time. Now, Francis Ngannou touches you in a stand-up position. You're just out. You're out before you hit the ground. Mm -hmm. Derek Lewis's power is not the same. He's not a guy that just stands in front of you, clobbers you with one shot, and folds you over. He actually knocks you down. Once he gets you to the ground, he just pounds you over from that ground-and-pound position. He's not getting on top of Curtis Blake, I don't think. He doesn't have that stand-up power to just drop him with a clean shot, uh, well, I mean, maybe they're heavyweights, but I mean, you look at traditionally how he knocks guys out. It's on the ground, not exactly stand up. I think Curtis Blaze just stands circles around him, takes him down when he needs to, avoids all danger. Uh, probably over two and a half rounds just because he, he likes to take his opponents into some deeper waters and fatigue them. But this is a bad stylistical matchup for the Black Beast. And with Curtis Blades, they're trying to promote this guy as a heavyweight contender, someone who's going to fight for the title. He's still one of the younger heavyweights that is ranked currently in the top 10. You know, the promotional machine's behind him. He can fight five rounds. And with Derek Lewis, it's like, yeah, three-fight winning streak, but it's just a fun story. And you just go back a few fights and you look at the Ilya Latifi fight. Here's a 205-er who's five foot eight and is just taking him down when he needs to, controlling him when he needs to, arguably wins that fight, save for a few moments of, Lewis swinging at him like blades are just going to completely neutralize that he's a much 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 bigger man and he should be able to have a lot more success holding Lewis down when he does get him there so uh give me Curtis blades give me the over two and a half rounds I think that as far as the main event goes pretty should be straightforward the other fights on this card however ooh, got Anthony Lionheart Smith taking on Devin Clark uh Anthony Smith minus 135 favorite Devin Clark plus 115 I saw on the gram, as the kids are saying, that Devin Clark's uh, mother-in-law passed away, like, on Tuesday. So, rest in peace to her. Um, that's got to be a, a tough situation for him. Devin Clark's not exactly a guy who I ever thought was a... He's really, really small at 205 pounds. I know that we've we've done pretty well, uh, at least recently, kind of getting off of... Or staying away from Anthony Smith, fading Anthony, Anthony Smith. But I think the price is right here at minus 135. I haven't made a bet on this yet. I was waiting to talk to you, basically, this entire card. I want to see where your head's at before I start pouncing. Uh, maybe a little bit of buyer's remorse from last week. Um, but right now, I'm kind of thinking Anthony Smith, six foot four versus six foot. Just a bigger, bigger guy. Devin Clark has struggled with his cardio in the past, not being able to go uh, three rounds. I think Anthony Smith wins here. If you have to rely on Devin Clark to kind of secure takedowns, um, he just hasn't shown the cardio to withstand to maintain that type of game plan over the course of three rounds. So I think Smith gets back on track here. What about you? Yeah, with Anthony Smith, it's definitely a step down in competition, which is exactly what he needs. You look at his last five fights, Volkan Uzdemir, John Jones, Alexander Gustafson, Glover Teixeira, Alexander Rakic. It's like it's murderer's row. And for the most part, he gives a good account of himself until he just gets tired and falls apart. When you fall apart against world-class competition, these guys are making adjustments. These guys keep bringing that pressure. These guys find ways to win. 
uh, you can't make these 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 late fight lapses. But now he's dropping down to take on Devin Clark, and yeah, very reasonable line minus one thirty five, considering they're trying to sell you this guy as like a minus two twenty, minus two fifty favorite against guys like Glover Texera. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's in it against guys like Alexander Rakic, and now he gets Devin Clark. And all of a sudden, we're off of him. And how is Devin Clark going to win this fight? Well, he's got to use his wrestling. He's got to be able to take him down. He's got to be able to neutralize him. But here's like that common misconception about MMA. How do you win a fight? Well, there's three ways to win a fight. You outstrike a guy. You got better striking. You, you can out-wrestle the guy. You know, you establish top control. You're a better grappler. You know, you can work off your back, try to submit him, do all that. But the one way to win that we don't always factor in is just cage control. And that's the key to victory here for Devin Clark. He just needs to get Anthony Smith up against the cage and just try to neutralize him. Smith's takedown defense is okay. If you do get him to the ground, it's not great off his back. He's got like this turtle-up defense. If he gets to his hands and knees, he just kind of lies there and just like absorbs a little too much punishment, hangs out there a little too long. But he's a quick starter. And in these fights against Rackage, these fights against Glover, they're going later into the rounds. He's tiring, he's slowing down, he doesn't look as good. This is a three-round fight against a guy in Devin Clark that doesn't push much, doesn't push much of a pace outside of up against the cage. Yeah, I would say it's Anthony Smith. He's just such a much bigger guy that that you know, junior college wrestling background from Devin Clark just doesn't quite get it done. And you see Devin Clark against guys like Daquan Townsend, like he's not even having great success in his wrestling against those type of competition. He's just able to neutralize him against the cage. That's going to be way harder against Smith. And surely Smith taking a fight with, with uh, Clark knows for sure coming in. What's this guy going to try to do? He's going to try to take me down. He's going to try to get me up against the cage. Those guys at Factory Muay Thai, hopefully they, uh, they, they've got it snuffed down. They've got a good game plan, but... I would agree. At minus 135, I, I think Anthony Smith. Now, maybe we chase that prop a little bit with, do you see this fight go in the over? See, Anthony Smith Same loses price, this fight. Minus 135, it's, it's, plus 115. If Smith's going to lose, it's going to go to decision, right? He's going to lose this fight by decision. Clark's yeah. not putting him away. Whereas if Smith wins, you know, we always talk about Clark's chinny, Clark's chinny. It's like, ah, is he? He's been wobbled, but he just fights such a pace that doesn't allow, there's not a whole lot of open room that he's able to survive, I think, a lot of time. A lot of his fights have been going to decision lately. So maybe if you don't feel 100% confident with Anthony Smith, maybe he does shit in the apple pie, maybe he does lose. The same price you could just take fight goes to decision. And if you're a degenerate and you really want to juice it up, then you would take Anthony Smith, and you maybe chase that Anthony Smith by decision. If you're the most degenerate and you are taking Clark, again, Clark by decision. You're like you're chasing those extra points. But as far as my mind goes, like I'm seeing the overhit in this fight. And I would think that Smith being the bigger man, if he's able to just keep the fight standing, able to land those, those better shots in that open space, that uh, it'll eventually take what would be a relatively close decision. But for minus 135, you're, you're willing to take that shot. Smith by decision is paying uh, like plus 325, plus 350 right now, depending on where you get it. I don't hate that, but let's continue. We got uh, Josh Parisian taking on Parker Porter. Parisian, minus 200 favorite Porter, plus... 170. I remember watching uh, poor, uh, Parisian on the Contender Series, and he was taking on some guy who weighed in at like 215 pounds, clearly a light heavyweight who took the fight on short notice. He got clipped a whole bunch of times in that fight. Watched it again last night. It's just like, oh, kind of a missed opportunity because uh, I wrote on Twitter, at that uh, uh, August 18th, I wrote, sign him so I can fade when he fights a heavyweight. And then now I see him matched up against Parker Porter, who, I mean, I don't know where this guy is at at this point. Um, I mean, got absolutely mollywopped by Dawkins. And I watched a couple of his fights. I watched him against Bruinstrup. 
And man, like the level of competition that this guy's been taking on is pretty low. Anytime he's taking on any sort of step up in competition, these are years ago. He had like a three year layoff from 2015 to 2018. Just a uh, just a real greasy heavyweight fight here. I suppose you put a gun to my head and I have to bet one side of this. It would be Parker Porter because it's probably closer to 50 50. I'm not impressed by Parisian whatsoever, but both of these guys are not anywhere near the old level of the uh, heavyweight division in the UFC. Um, It's dog or pass, likely a pass. What about you? Well, yeah, just like the price seems off. If you're going to take a shot on the underdog, at least Parker Porter is plus 170, whereas Josh Parisian, you're getting middling heavyweight at best, and he's a two-to-one favorite, right? So, I mean, that's going to be a very worrisome. We we forgot to mention one thing on that that, uh, Anthony Smith fight really quick is that, you know, we always said friends don't let friends bet on Anthony Smith, and here we are contemplating the idea of betting Anthony Smith. And, and you're going to see a lot of these spots in this card because that's exactly what it is. Josh Parisian, it's like I wouldn't advise a bet on him for the most part versus Parker Porter. It's like would definitely not advise one. So like who are you going to go with? Personally, I'm going to go with Josh Parisian. I just think he's made those better improvements. Uh, th- this is what I actually do like about him. When he fought in contender series, and I agree with you 100%. Guy, it, it's a minute and a half. He lands a spinning back fist, but it's like, ooh, this guy is not going to last long. And Dana, instead of giving him a contract, and you've got a cool knockout, knows he's a little bit green. Instead, gives him a spot on the Ultimate Fighter. Says, you know what? Why don't you come on the Ultimate Fighter? we got the heavyweights. Takes on Michelle Batista, who's got uh, two wins in, you know, collegiate wrestling. Not collegiate, sorry, but world world championship wrestling. Or Daniel Cormier, you know, guy was Olympian out of Cuba. Bad matchup. He gets taken down. He gets beat up. Whatever. It is what it is. He comes out of that. He loses his next fight. This guy's definitely bust. He's definitely bust. But you know what? He fought five times that year in 2019. Gets five fights in. This year as well, this is going to be his third time fighting. And you watch him. He's a mobile heavyweight. His gas tank seems to be okay, although he's getting a lot of finishes. But you know what? I, I see improvements of him every fight out. He's fighting a lot of cans. But you're seeing those improvements every time out. Parker Porter at 35, he's done, man. That layoff effectively was the end of him. When he took that three-year layoff from 2015 to 2018, it was like, okay, you know what? This, this is the end of your competitiveness. He's a tiny heavyweight in terms of, yeah, his legs are huge, but he's a short little heavyweight. He retires. Comes back three years later, fights an eight and seventeen opponent. Ah, oh, just for shits and gigs. Then he fights a nine and nine opponent. Ah, oh, shits and gigs. Then he gets those wins, like you said, Dur- that Durley Bronstrup fight. Durley Bronstrup is a mad journeyman at this point, and, and like, like a light heavyweight as well. Particularly, yeah, and he doesn't look good against these guys. No. Light heavyweight, get him to some deeper waters. The old man crumples. He's able to take advantage. He gets the win. Whereas Chris Dokus, it's like, okay, this is your shot. You know, this is a man that once fought John Jones. He's never got his dues. He took that layoff. He's come back from layoff, fought nobody effectively. And now he's got a UFC debut. That's cool. He's already overachieved at this point. He's already had his dream. And Chris Delkis just mauls him. Uh, there's no spots for, for Parker Porter in there. Like, I didn't think he, he, he looked good at all. Gets a second fight in the UFC. That's cool. Winnable fight against Josh Preezen. But, like, how is he going to win this fight? Got to take Josh Preezen down? Could, but I think Josh Preezen is actually the better grappler. As long as he doesn't end up on the bottom versus this you know, short little stubby of a man, Parker Porter on top of him. But in that open space, like, he's just a bigger man. He's going to throw those more flashier techniques. He's going to be longer. Parker Porter's gas tank shouldn't overly hold up. It's a pass. It's a pass. But because people are going to want action on this card, they want to pick, you know, I am going to take Josh Preezen. I honestly do think that those improvements are going to be shown here. And, again, he's only 31. At heavyweight, that's young. He probably won't look good for a few fights. He may never look good. But the fact that he's getting a little bit better fight between fight, that's perfect. With Parker, I just don't see it. So, 
Dogger pass seems fair enough. I just can't get behind Parker, so I'm going to have to hit, like, a flat pass. Yep, that's fair. All right, let's uh, move on. we got Miguel Baeza taking on Takashi Sato. Baeza is a minus 150 favorite. Sato can be had for plus 130. Probably one of the better fights on the card, to be perfectly honest. Uh, where's your head at on this one? Well, Baeza's been have, making him look half foolish so far. I mean, he comes from the contender series where he beat Victor Reyna, and that's, a t- that's an easy win as far as I'm concerned. Like, I'm just not high up on Victor Reyna at all. And it is a decision victory, and he looks good in some spots, but you see where, you know, he's still green. He's still young at the time. Uh, he's still developing. I think he's a BJJ black belt. He's out of uh, MMA Masters in Florida. So he's got that flashy, like, almost capoeira style, good kicks, but he's green. He's improving. Then they give him Hector Aldon in his debut. Obviously, you're not taking Hector Aldana. So you take Miguel Beza. He wins the fight. He wins the fight in the second round. I don't, I don't know that he looked good developing, but it's Hector Aldana. So it's hard to get a real good read. Then I faded him in that Matt Brown fight. There's something about him. He leaves his chin in the air. He seems really hittable. I just don't know how he's going to wear a shot. The fight starts. He's probably three, maybe four times faster than Matt Brown. Like It's like, holy fuck, man. Matt Brown's moving in quicksand, and, and this kid's just dancing all around him. But Matt Brown still manages to connect with him. He hurts him. He wobbles him. He lands a pretty decent elbow as well. But you just see this guy recover right as well. And as soon as he recovers, he puts it on him really good. And, mm-hmm. you know, He's got a good southpaw stance, good left hand. Again, the kicks are there. You see this is just another kid that's improving, that's getting better. I like what I've seen out of him. Now it's like, okay, do you take him against Takashi Sato? Sato's just a banger. And when you look at his level of competition in the UFC, when they've given him the Ben Saunders of the world and the Jason Witts of the world, he's just going to go out there and crush those guys. Does he go out there and crush Beza? No. But it's possible. Because, again, Beza leaves his head up there. And with Sato, I mean, he, he's just trying to line you up with that big shot. But once these fights kind of go into deeper waters and Sato runs out of moves, uh, that's where I think that Beza's output should just like eventually win the day. Just chip away at him with kicks, stay on the outside. If the fight does hit the ground, he's actually the far better grappler. So uh, give me Miguel Beza, but just not a spot that I feel super confident about. Uh, we got the Alpha Ginger, Spike Carlisle, taking on Bill Algeo. Carlisle, minus 175, Algeo, plus 155. Rewatching Algeo last night against Lamas. I mean, the guy keeps his hands real, real low. Maybe that's because he's concerned of the uh, the takedown from Ricardo Lamas, but like he lines up some like... Like a serious, serious flying knee, which which stuns. Like that was a uh, Lamas was like a minus three hundred favorite in that spot, and uh, Algio gave ready. him gave him some hard times for sure. Spike Carlisle, on the other hand, uh, fighting against uh, our boy Billy Q last time out, super super close fight. Um, I see him putting in time right now with, uh, or at least he had a picture on his Instagram. Who knows? Maybe they only worked together for a day, but he worked with uh, Giga Chikads. Uh, a little bit for this card, which I feel like in terms of the style of Algio, that's probably a pretty good uh, look that he would get in this spot. But um, uh, here's my major concern. I think Algio, most of his wins, you go through his record, most of his wins come by knockout. He's got some flashy techniques. He's a fun fighter. This should be one of the more entertaining fights on the card. Like, I'm looking forward to this one, to be perfectly honest. But... um, Carlisle may just be cast iron, and as the fight goes on, like we were talking about, oh, I think Spike Carlisle's going to gas when we were taking on Billy Q, and you know what? Billy Q Q brought that fight to a pace that little to no people at Featherweight can really keep, and and Spike was, I know he's, by the time we got to round three, he definitely slowed down, but like, Spike hung in there uh, at that pace, so right now, like, for me, it's kind of dog or pass. I think 
Algio just has a little bit more tools in the shed in term at this price specifically. He just has a little bit more tools in the shed in terms of like his uh, the striking techniques and all of that. But uh, super super fun fight. What what do you think about this one? Yeah, when the first got released, I was like, ah, oh, you know, it's Spike Carlisle. How could you not like this guy? I mean, he's just got like a funny personality. Talks absolute amount of shit. It's just like, good god. But that's to a certain extent what fans get excited for. Comes in that fight with Billy Cantillo, and we are on Billy Q big time. And boy, oh boy, was that a sweat. Because here's the thing with Spike Carlisle. There's very few guys at this weight class that are that strong. He was so strong, Paul, that when you look back at it, he only actually took Billy down three times. Mm -hmm. The thing is, when he took Billy down, Billy couldn't do shit. And Billy is really scrambly off his back. Billy loves throwing up submissions. Billy just loves pushing the pace. Despite Carlisle just proved to be too much. There was a couple spots there was like, oh, Billy's about to hit a sweep. And as soon as he went to do anything, no. Billy took Spike back twice, right? Billy takes your back, it's game over. Spike literally would just go two-on-one risk control, turn right back into him. Like, my God, this guy's a strong guy. But I think being that strong, he exerts a lot of energy. And yeah, I had a lot of money on Billy. And yeah, I'm a Billy, big Billy supporter, as you guys probably all know by this point. But I truthfully thought Billy did win that fight. And why it was Spike was on top, but he was tired and he wasn't doing anything. He was just allowing, like, Billy to try to land these small shots and Billy try to scramble and Billy trying to throw up submissions and Spike mostly just tried to hold him down and neutralize him. With Bill Aljeo, it might be exactly the same thing. Like Bill Aljeo fights at a really trepid pace. So people always say, well, the reason Billy won that fight is because he just got an infinite gas tank. He's always going. He's always going. Very true. When you look at Bill Aljeo, this is interesting. His fight with, with Brendan Lucane on Contender Series, even though he loses the fight and he actually got taken down three times, right? He landed 147 significant strikes. Incredible. His debut against Ricardo Lamas is a three-to-one underdog. The guy's got like a high school wrestling background, uh, good jiu-jitsu. You know, like he's a very well-rounded fighter. Mm-hmm. Comes against Lamas, he's going to get killed by Lamas. Lamas has got better grappler, right? BJJ Blackwell, better grappler. Wrestled collegiately, better wrestler. Way more experience. Bill Ojo is making his fucking UFC debut against a f- former title contender. Bill gave a really good account of himself. Not only that, he was outstruck 104 to 89. You know, 89 significant strikes landed on Lamas. Coming in on the spot, took down Ricardo Lamas. Again, gave a good account of himself. But when, when you talk about pace and being able to push the action, Bill can push the action. So my worry is that Spike probably goes out there and takes him down. But Bill might do the exact same thing Billy did. That's just keep working, keep working, eventually get back up. Keep in mind, Lamas took him down five times. Lamas is a way better wrestler and grappler than Spike, mm-hmm. but he had to take him down five times. Why? Because when he would take him down, Bill would get back up. Will du- when Bill does get back up, he just throws a lot more strikes. That's what lost Spike Carlisle the fight last time out. And that's what could lose him this time. And then the last thing is, and this is just crazy theory, but when you're such a perceived dickhead like Spike Carlisle is, that's his persona, and you go to the Wayans and you he talk shit, the judges, oh, man, do you follow this guy? Like, do you, do you read any of his, into any of his shit? He just not comes too, off as a prick a lot closely. of the time. I would say that judges and when you're sitting there and it's a close fight, you go with the humble martial artist a lot more times than you go with the guy that went out there and talked a lot of shit. Billy got... What in a lot of people's opinions, not my opinion, but Billy got in a lot of people's opinions a favorable rub against Spike. Understandably so. Spike comes off as an asshole. If this is a close fight, Bill's getting back up when he's taken down. Bill's making him work. Spike gets tired again. Bill starts landing you know, his strikes. He lets his hands go. He doubles him up on the significant strike count. Wins a decision. I'm not surprised. When I look at that dog money, that's a dog that I like. So as far as me taking Blade Smith, fucking Josh Perry's in my book. 
Miguel Beza. Okay, Bill LJO is definitely a, a dog with a shot here. So again, whereas I initially thought Spike's just going to be too strong and hold him down, I think that Bill could follow the exact same game plan that one Billy Q played out for him and uh, have some the exact same success. So give me a dog or pass on this Bill LJO versus Spike Carlisle fight. I see that this one, uh, the over, uh, over under set to two, uh, two and a half rounds. It's a straight pick them right now. Fight goes to decision. Yes, is plus one forty, plus one thirty five, depending on where you get it. I mean, I think that's I like probably that. worth a I look like too. I think Spike's yeah. super, super durable. We saw that even if he gasses out, gets tired against a guy like Billy Q, that he's able to hold on. And um, and you know, you go through these guys' records on the regional scene; they're absolutely icing people. But you know, seeing LGO be able to hang with Ricardo Lamas leads me to believe that you can probably hang with uh, Spike Carla, who hits really hard. That's going to be the most dangerous part of a bet like that. But I think we may have uncovered my, my, first, uh, my first bet of the card. I'm going to play the over in this matchup between Bill Algeo and Spike Carla. We move on down. We got uh, Ashley Evans-Smith taking on Norma Dumont. Ashley Evans-Smith, a minus-140 favorite. Dumont can be had four plus one twenty. Ashley Evans Smith coming up from one hundred and twenty-five pounds to one thirty-five, where she has fought before in the past. Norma Dumont coming down from one forty-five, where she had no business. She kind of took it on short notice, taking on Megan Anderson in her last time out, and I mean she was holding up Megan Anderson against the cage and doing all of that eight-one clean shot down the pipe, and there goes your undefeated record. Uh, where's your head at on this one, Cody? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get a great read on it. With Norma Duma, it's that you, there's just not a whole lot to look at. As far as her regional scene career goes, from the limited tape that is available on her, you just don't know exactly how far along in her career she is. She signed to the UFC. She was coming off a win over this Mariana Marais, uh, won a majority decision. You can watch that one on Fight Pass. 13-8 and eight opponent. And again, I mean, she's developing. She's green. But, like, where is her specialty? She a grappler? Doesn't seem like it. Is her striking very good? Like, no, not particularly. Her jumping up and taking that fight against Megan Anderson, like, well, why? Why? Jumping up a weight class. Uh, but there's nobody at 45. And they just need to sign anybody. For someone like Dumont, Dumont's really hot. At least that's what I take from him. Good-looking gal. <laughs> sign with Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson, is, in a lot of people's opinions, super hot, right? Maybe they're fetish people. Ah, But it's a, yeah, whatever. We'll put this fight together. One of them's going to prevail. Probably going to be Megan Anderson. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, to Dumont's credit, she came in as a, sizable underdog like plus 225 and she didn't even make it out of the first round got caught by anderson that's all she wrote is she gonna have a size advantage over ashley evan smith yeah for sure but ashley evan smith's gonna have that wrestling advantage she's gonna have the experience advantage she would you know i i don't know if you can say she has a striking advantage but she there theoretically you at least know what you're getting out of ashley evan smith Dumont's here's a like dilemma a, here's a like dilemma a with Sanda this fight. champion or something like that <laughs> yeah here's but so and, not and here's a grappler a she's from brazil but it's it's mostly uh like what Sanda's like a, a mix of like kung fu and something else i believe Sanda's a lot of striking like kickboxing and it's got a lot of throws right mm -hmm. so i mean they're good in the clinch position they're good at tossing their opponents to the ground again if she's able to toss ashley evan smith to the ground and get on top of her Ashley Evan Smith has the better grappling, but you have a girl moving down from 145 pounds. With Evan Smith, yeah, she fought at 135. You're right. But she wasn't exactly a very big 135 to begin with. When you see her struggles in the UFC, it's like, it, it's very hit and miss. And, and again, that's what I come back to. I say it's the dilemma here. You have someone in Dumont who you don't fully know what to expect versus someone in Ashley Evan Smith who you know exactly what to expect. And what to expect is not very good. I mean, as far as her having that wrestling background that collegiate wrestling background you just don't really see her use her wrestling that effectively 
Her top game, yet good at points. Her cardio, just lackluster. Her striking, she pulls a lot of her punches. Um, one thing about her is that she wears damage awful. You know, you could hit her with a few jabs and just start to, to bruise up. She'll start to bleed a little bit. I mean, it doesn't always give the judges the best opinions. She gets winging a lot of punches when she starts to get tired and a little more desperate in there. Uh, she's fought in good girls. She's fought in bad girls. She's looked good at times. She's looking bad at times. Like, I would have to say that it's a complete dog pass because they're trying to tell you Ashley Evans Smith's the favorite. I can't get behind that myself. I would say that plus two one twenty at Norma Dumont, but truthfully, it's like you probably live bet it if anything, mm-hmm. or maybe hit the over if anything. I have a feeling that's not going to be a very good price tag either. Um, but yeah, honestly, don't yeah, don't no. force spots. This is a pass type fight. The over the over is minus two seventy five right wow, now. Yeah, I, it, for the, and for that price, you don't want the over because yeah. I she mean, Dumont took or, one clean strike down the pipe. Now it was up a weight class, and and she folded. And we've seen Ashley Evans Smith, you know, the bulldog choke against Raquel Pennington comes to mind. Like, yeah, the elbows against Mississippi. Risky business when you're, always, lay, when you're laying nearly uh, three to one on something, I would say. Ashley um, Evans Smith, Ashley Evans Smith has a win by TKO over Fallon Fox. He used to be a man, baby. So, uh, yeah, she's got some power, right? Like, if she gets on top of you and starts mashing you with some elbows, she could put you away. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, she's gonna, the, the size, I think, is what's scaring me off of it. So I'm going to hit a pass. Uh, Martin Day, minus 155. Anderson Dos Santos, plus 135. Where's your head at on this one, kid? Martin Day just seems to be a little bit faster. He's got that Taekwondo background. He's got a really good kick game. My issue with his kick game, and for that matter, having a Taekwondo background, is they throw a lot of spinning techniques, and it's like, dog, it's the UFC. Like, if you're going to throw that shit, you had better hope to God it lands. Because for the most part, they're just going to use this as an opportunity to take your back. They're going to use this as an opportunity to clinch up with you, and who knows. And with Anderson Dos Santos, I mean, that's, that's his best path. He is really, really slow when you see him out there. He does not move his head off the line. He's extremely hittable. He's durable at times, but we've also seen him rocked in there a lot of uh, uh, a bunch of other times as well. Um, he seems to be like he's going to be the smaller man. I think what's he listed at five foot? He is. Let me just make sure because that was one big discrepancy. I thought that uh, he was going to have coming in. He so Anderson DeSantos is five foot five, right? And 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 Anderson DeSantos five foot five, right? So okay, he's yeah. giving up a five inch reach advantage and a three inch. Uh, uh, Height advantage. And a three no, inch the reach, reach on topology is the exact same between the two of them. Well, you got to go by fight metric. Fight metric is 73 for Martin Day versus 70 for DeSantos. And okay. that's going to be the accurate stat, right? He's also got a five inch height advantage on him. So, what I honestly see playing out is Anderson DeSantos Anderson does have the better grappling. He'd have to, if you, you know, say, had top position, but his wrestling's not all that good. He's going to have to chase Martin Day down. And with, because his striking is just not all that good, it's herky-jerky, it's slow, it's robotic, and he's a little bit slow in there, I think he's just going to get picked apart with the kick game from range. He's going to really have to do a lot of work to close that distance and get a hold of him. If he doesn't get a hold of him, it's just going to be Martin Day picking away at him. Andre Uhl fought a very similar game plan. He had a big height advantage, he had a big reach advantage, he stayed to the outside, he used jabs instead of kicks. Martin Day is a little bit quicker than Andre Uhl, I think. He's going to have to minus P's and Q's in there. And again, this is Martin Day. He's eight and four. He's on two fight losing streak in the UFC. He has not looked very good by all means, but they're giving you two guys. You know what this is? This is UFC. What 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 are, what are they calling it? Are they calling it UFC Vegas fourteen? Fifteen. This is UFC walking papers. They owe a bunch of guys contracts. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's right before the holidays, so it's like you might as well take a paycheck on your Apparently way out. They're cutting like thirty seven people. Um, who was it that got released recently? Oh, Formiga. Formiga got released recently, and uh, and then they told him, or they told his manager that 
there's like 37 people who are also getting their walking papers. Like that whole contender series, what, they signed what? Out of the 45 fights, they signed like 37 people or somewhere around or 35 people. They took our jibs. That's what okay, but and, 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 and just to tell you real quick, right? Parker Porter is fighting for his job effectively mm-hmm. ashley evan smith is fighting for her job norma dumont is fighting for her job martin day and anderson dos santos are both fighting for their job gina mazani ostovich and gina mazani <laughs> fighting for their are job fighting for their job we're at seven by the way mm-hmm. jonathan pierce is fighting for his job malcolm gordon he's just owing one in the ufc he didn't look very good in his last fight if he, if he gets blown out here you can see it Luke Sanders is fighting for his job. Yep. There could be eight or nine cuts right from this card alone. And 100%. yet we have to advise people on betting on some of them. So essentially we're telling you who's not going to get cut. That's what we're looking at in these spots. That's essentially, I'm glad that you phrased it that way because uh, that's, that, that's basically what came to mind when I was running through this card. I was just like, how are a bunch of these people still on the roster? All right. So here is the spot, Cody. Gina Mazzani is a favorite in a UFC contest. Uh, she is a minus 135 favorite. Rachel Ostovich can be had for plus 115. Gina Mazzani, obviously, used to fight at 135. Uh, got folded by uh, Avila last time out. A couple knees to the body, and that was kind of all she wrote. Rachel Ostovich, I, I kind of forgot about it, but she was looking great against Paige Van Zant. In that fight, uh, took her down multiple times, landed some big shots over the top. I know she's she's four and five. I don't know what her training camp has been like. Went on her uh, Instagram, which is great, but uh, oh not, my not, god, which but, is it's but. not it's not great for like finding out who she's been training with, um, and what she's been doing in terms of a training. But like, great, some she's got some great uh, moments going on over there. Um, Gina Mazzani, on the other hand, on her Instagram, like she's looking the best shape she's ever been in. She's obviously training at uh, uh, Kansas City. What's the name of the gym right now? Tim Elliott. Yeah, obviously, her boyfriend is Tim, Tim Elliott right now. Um, she's looking amazing at 125, best shape of her life. Uh, obviously, both of them are going to be very motivated. But after rewatching Ostovich versus Paige Van Zant, like Ostovich was winning every single moment of that fight until she submitted to the what that armbar from a, a sneaky little transition. But she was sticking to the game plan, taking her down, doing everything. So it's dog or pass, baby. I don't know if I am I, if I'm gonna have the stones to pull the trigger on this, but uh, it's Ostovich or pass in my opinion, plus one fifteen. Yeah, you know what? The only reason you could talk yourself into making a Rachel Ostovich bet is, uh, again, you go on Instagram, you look at that first picture, you look at that eighth picture. Mm, baby. I, outside of that, it's like, I, listen, she's been on for two years, right? So is it possible that she made improvements? Yeah, entirely. She was known for her jiu-jitsu, but she doesn't look overly physically strong. Uh, when she was on The Ultimate Fighter, you know, it's just like it's a big-time work in progress. But her jiu-jitsu, it's wily. Like, it's, she likes to scramble. She could throw up that submission, potentially. Yeah, I, I think that, if anything, that's in play. When she fought Paige Van Zandt, like you were saying, striking looked like it had been making some improvements. To get submitted by Paige Van Zandt would really give you the impression that you are not, in fact, a good grappler. But she's 27 years old. What has she done between 27 and 29? Like, that's entirely up to her. Being in Hawaii, 
I can't knock on the training situation. I wouldn't say that it's ideal to me making those optimal improvements, but we also just don't know. Like, is she Max Holloway in Hawaii training at a good level, uh, getting those rounds in, like putting a camp together around her, or is she mostly taking these pictures on the beach, which I'm not against, but it seems like she's taking a lot of pictures on the beach. Two-year-long layoff is just a problem because once she pulled out of that Veronica Macedo fight, she got hurt. Again, it's like six months later, she got booked against Shayna Dobson. She pulled out. It's injuries. Are you able to train at your best when you're injured all the time and you're sitting on the sidelines? Like, I, I don't know. Gina Mazzani, Gina Mazzani is smart enough to realize that 100% her job is on the line here. She's taking on a four and five fighter who's uh, she's coming down a weight class for the first time. She, got, she did the UFC a favor by taking that Julia Avila fight on mm-hmm. short notice and then proceeded to get knocked down 22 seconds. So as much as it was a favor, it was also a bum spot. Previous to that, I mean, it, her record shows one and one in her last two fights. But as far as her UFC record goes, like she has just not been giving a good account of herself. Well, yeah, she However, beat Valerie. I will. It, I will well, she beat Valerie well, Barney, who was 40, 40 was 44 was, now. Yeah, 40, Maybe she was yeah, 43 yeah. at the time when they fought each other. Like that was like, that was just, that's, that's a fight that would not take place under most sanctionable uh, states and everything like that. It shouldn't be sanctioned yet, for sure. But look at that again, right? What was Valerie Barney's last fight before Gina Mazzani? Go ahead and tell me. 2011. Right. (laughs) Where she she lost to... (laughs) Where she lost to somebody who didn't have a fight? Catalina Mutalunga? Valerie Barney. If you know anything about Valerie Barney, she runs the promotion she was fighting for. And it was just some good times for the old gal. Her taking a fight with Gina Mazzani is laughable, 43 years old, nine-year-long layoff, moving up a weight class. Okay, so that's not really a win for Gina Mazzani. And then outside of that, she's just been getting smoked out of there. But here's where I'll give the benefit of the doubt. Sarah McMahon, geez, man, Sarah McMahon, former Olympian, you know, top-level wrestling, big and strong. Lena Landsberg, yeah, big, strong, at least, more of a Muay Thai fighter, definitely more of a Muay Thai fighter. But, I mean, she's good in the clinch, and she's a bigger girl. Macy Chason was coming down from 145, had won the ultimate fighter, if anything is just strong, has really shown as little else but strength, but has size and strength. And Julia Avila, who was a top prospect before getting a, a slice of humble pie last time out, she hasn't been fighting scrub. They bring her in to do a job. They bring her in to lose. They would love to keep Rachel Ostevich on the roster. They would love to keep Rachel Ostevich's career going and for her to get to 5-5. Five and five. And who, who could she potentially beat? Well, maybe Gina Mazzani. But like you said, Gina looks in really good shape. And coming out of Glory MMA Infinite with James Krause and them, they're going to have a really good game plan for her. And that's kind of all you need for Rachel Ostevich. you got to do exactly what you did against Yanan Wu once upon a time. And I know it's not pretty, but just hold this girl against the cage and just wear on her and just make this grindy. Like, as, as pretty as Rachel Ostevich is, make this an ugly fight. And just grind her, grind her, grind her. And eventually she'll fatigue. Two-year-long layoff is actually, you know, pretty big to overcome in and in, in itself. So unless she's made massive improvements and I'm just not fully sold on that, I can't fully get behind it. So... Uh, would I advise anybody to bet Gina Mazzani as a favorite? Like, no. So, but I have to make a pick. So, pick officially is Gina Mazzani. Um, yeah, but is there confidence there? Like, no, no, not at all. Six in, or six inch reach advantage for Mazzani here. Well, Mazzani coming down like she wasn't undersized at thirty five. Man, mm-hmm. she was actually a decent size thirty five. Like she's looking shredded, shredded on on her videos. She seems to be working really hard. I don't know. What a, what a okay, tough, so, tough state of affairs here. 
here's here's one for you uh gina mazzani was living in las vegas for years right and out in las vegas she was actually a bartender and like a well-known bartender and now you're working in the pub scene and you're in the pub food and you're drinking and, you, and you're working this full-time job and you're right on the strip and you're right in the action that's where she meets tim elliott now her and tim elliott settled his fight career goes to fucking shit her fight career she's fighting girls that are just above her you know i can't say that she's you know, not trying. Tim Elliott's way more talented than he shows. She's not more talented than she shows. They're just giving her bad matchups, right? Them leaving, you see him leaving. You see him go back to Kansas and the improvements he makes and just the focus that he gets and he comes in in way better shape and fights a way better, gives a better version of himself. She could completely do the exact same thing. Yeah. And if she does, she wins this fight. But that being said, Ostovich, 27 to 29, two years off, might have just been spending every day in the gym. Hard to believe because she seems to spend a lot of time on the beach. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You're saying dog or pass. That makes sense. I'm saying Mazzani or pass. And again, I hate to say pass on all these spots, but pass is not a bad, not a bad. Thing. Yeah, it's not. It, I, I, it's one of those cards because, like, we've been saying, you know, there was a couple weeks ago. Last week we obviously got torched, but um, the week before we were just like, you know, this feels like a dog card, but like. It's not. It's not so easy on this one. Trying like this to pull dog. the trigger on said dogs, you're like, yeah, this is a lower level of competition than we've seen on other cards. But it's like I don't really want to put my hard-earned money on some of, in some of these spots, even if you're getting if it's perceived value. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure you'll have your parlays and stuff, but I am. Uh, well, I gotta. I gotta I'm a struggle bus but... trying to find like things that I really want to put serious cash on this week. I Which I think is fair. Not every week is going to be uh, Hammertown. All right, we got Kai Kamaka taking on Jonathan Pierce. Kai Kamaka minus 300. Pierce plus 250. Pierce, obviously, in his last time out, got mollywopped by a Joe Lozon. Kai Kamaka, I mean, real savvy veteranship against your boy Tony Kelly, who was coming on in round three. And then, uh, what was it, a, a nut shot or... Something like that. Bought yeah, himself a yeah, bunch of time. Yeah, kind shot. of, uh, kind of stole that one. Is Tony? Who knows what would have happened? Tony Kelly was obviously down in that fight, but crazier things have happened, and Tony Kelly was definitely coming on at that point. So, uh, I'm not sure the nut shot actually worked, but uh, crafty veteran, uh, crafty uh, workmanship from Kai Kamaka in this spot. I don't know. Watching Jonathan Pierce get absolutely smoked by Joe Lozon. It's hard to uh, to jump on board there. So it's Kai, Kamar Kai Kamaka or bust for me. What about you? Yeah, Kai Kamaka, the only thing that would worry me is that he's taking the fight on short notice, and he looked against Tony Kelly like he just exerted so much energy in that first round that in the second round, he's gassed. He loses mm -hmm. the second round. In the third round, he's still gassed. And then the nut shot. Nut shot buys him two, three minutes. Enough for him to muster up enough strength to get the takedown. Takedown wins in the fight. Close fight. Some people actually did score for Tony Kelly, but Kai Kamaka did the better work. Um, the striking numbers are actually 114, 114 both sides, which is crazy to think Kamaka really did throw high numbers. And even in that first, that first round, he landed something like 43 significant strikes. His boxing looks technical. It looks crisp. His takedowns are on point. He ends up scoring five in the fight. As far as DK goes, and we'll talk about that later, Like he scored a tremendous amount of points in DraftKings against Tony Kelly, it, it, it's good. It's awesome. Perfect. If he goes out there and can do the exact same thing against Jonathan Pierce, you would have to think Jonathan Pierce is going to be pulled over at some point. Jonathan Pierce was the beneficiary. At least he was supposed to be the beneficiary of a Joe Lozon fight. Like, my God, Joe Lozon's dead at this point. It's three-fight losing streak. Clay Guida knocked him out in a minute and seven seconds. Uh, Chris Grutzmacher forced his corner to say, Joe, we can't do this anymore, man. 
he's coming off a, like a year and a half long layoff, and he's a two to one underdog against Jonathan Pierce, who no one's ever heard of, is making his UFC debut. And yet, Joe Lawson goes out there. He, he, he clips this guy. He hurts this guy. He ground and pounds this guy. Minute and a half, takes him out. So, like, where's Jonathan Pierce's chin at? Like, I, I don't know. Because previously to being knocked out right there by Joe Lozon, he hadn't shown a chin issue, but he does get finished quickly. He's got this loss to Quinton Culpepper by toehold, first round, doesn't matter. But Lance Lawrence also submits him in 24 seconds. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's one of these guys that goes out there against lesser competition, looks good. He's an MMA lab guy. He's got a couple uh, training partners on the card. Uh, he's grindy. He's got good wrestling. But if you can't take a punch, like, I can't get behind you. Especially because Kei Kamaka is a bomber. He lets those hands go. He lets them fly. You know why Tony Kelly is able to expose him a little bit in the second round? Because he survives the first, mm-hmm. but he's hurt in the first. He takes damage in the first. His body gets worked in the first. Now, the anomaly here is that Kai Kamaka, you look at his record, he doesn't knock out anybody. His last like eight or nine fights have gone to decision. He apparently has no power. But seeing Joe Lozon just put Jonathan Pierce away like that makes you wonder. Kai does the same thing he did to Tony Kelly, lets those hand goes, hurts this guy. Uh, he should be able to put him away, I, I would think. Again, this is a spot where you have Jonathan Pierce has not fought for a year. Like the Joe Lozon fight was a long time off. You know, he's only 28 years old. They call him JSP. You know, did he make improvements? Maybe. Was he good to begin with? I don't know. Did he just get clipped and is a lot better than that? Probably, if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Kai Kamaka, his gas tank doesn't look good, but it looked like he had the skills, man. And for that reason, I got to think that he gets the win. Pierce was originally going to fight Sean Woodson, and I would have been all over Sean Woodson. Mm -hmm. And Kai Kamaka is just taking that matchup from him. Cool, all good pace yourself a little bit more and if he does get into a greasy situation then at least we know he can fall back on the wrestling so give me kai kamaka uh, i don't love the price tag i think that we're just assuming that jonathan pierce is no good making kai kamaka a three to one favorite but um but i see it i i do i do understand it sue maderji minus 320 favorite against malcolm gordon who could be had for a plus 260 what do you think about this one Cub? Okay, so the line's off. Like, Malcolm Gordon's definitely a live dog, considering that he's going to have the grappling advantage. He is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. If he does manage to get this fight to the ground, I mean, he could potentially submit Sumajeri, who's just not seemingly shown a whole lot of great grappling, as well as takedown defense. When you look at Malcolm Gordon's career, though, and then this is actually tale of two fighters, right? And it's a very, as old as the sport itself, it's going to come down to a striker versus a grappler. Because mm-hmm. in Malcolm Gordon's case, he starts his career actually as a striker. That was his bread and butter. Team Tompkins guy. You know, spends a lot of time with the guys at Adrenaline MMA in London. Spends a lot of time at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas. His first loss to Randy Turner was actually a big upset. Canadian MMA standards. Uh, nobody thought Randy Turner, the ex-military man, was going to come out there and upset him. Randy Turner goes out there and knocks him out in the second round. Hit him, hurt him, took him out. It was a big upset. Him losing his next fight to Austin Ryan, it was, it was, a, you know, it was an upset. It wasn't as big as Randy Turner because he literally just lost. But again, same thing. Austin Ryan comes out of left field, 4-0 prospect, hits him, hurts him, knocks him out. His third pro loss against Dimitri Wadenberg. Uh, he, his legs just absolutely got chopped out from beneath him. He was not able to check any of the kicks despite being a, a Muay Thai sp- specialist himself. And eventually when he was immobile, he just was a sitting target. And Dimitri Waterberg knocks him out in the first round. His chin is not all that good. Now he goes on a little bit of run where he switches up. He says, fuck this striking stuff. I'm going to start grappling. Gets a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and just starts grappling. But you even look back at that fight with Yoni Sherbatov, which is two fights back. Uh, he, he's hurt in the first round, man. He's stung. He's wobbly. And he manages to get on top. Take the back, get that rear naked choke. But it's like, the striking's just not there. Now he takes his UFC debut, great. That's cool, because Gordon's put a lot of time into it. you got to realize that guys that spend a lot that much time in the regional scene, and they put that much time training, uh, when it's pandemic time, they're signing off anybody. Guys like these deserve a shot. And he gets that shot against Amir Albazi. He comes in, I believe he was a plus 115 underdog. I, I was big on Albazi, you remember. 
And it's the same thing. Like the striking is just not there for him. He just allows himself to just, there's no work in the pocket. Albazi backs him up. Albazi eventually, the fight does hit the ground. Take down from Gordon and then triangle choke submitted. He's becoming the grappler now. That's his thing. He's a grappler now. And yet submitted by Amir Albazi in the first round. Maybe it's octagon jitters. Maybe it's ring rust. Maybe it's who knows all these different types of things. I, I don't know. Cut, cut him cut him a break. Maybe he'll give a better version of himself against Suma Jerry here. But I expect Suma Jerry to be the one giving the better account of himself. Because again, you go back to his fight with Louis Smolka, let's say. Well, actually, you know what? Remember how we just talked about how uh, Malcolm Gordon, been, he's getting knocked out. He's getting wobbly. He's getting hit. He's getting, he's getting hurt. If this fight stays standing, he's fucked. He's going to get hurt. He's going to get knocked out. He needs to get this fight to the ground. Flip side to that, Suma Jerry, okay? First loss, armbar. Second loss, really good choke. Third loss, choke. The Louis Smolka fight, this is UFC debut in China. He gets armbarred. It's like he's been submitted in all of his pro losses. If this fight hits the ground, Gordon could definitely pull that choke, put it into play, and submit this guy. I could definitely see it happening. The difference there is that with Suma Jerry loses that fight to Louis Smolka, he takes about a year off afterwards, right? When he comes in against Andre Sukumantath, He's only 23 years old. He comes in against Sukumantat. You saw a lot of improvements. This guy's southpaw stance is nice, man. He's long. He's rangy. He's got a really nice left hand down the, the pocket. He's stunned Sukumantat in the first round a couple of times. But beyond that, you see this guy getting more confident. Now, Sukumantat's not a wrestler in the slightest bit. So when Sukumantat shoots a couple takedowns, Sumajeri looks good stuffing them. But, like, what are you stuffing? Come on. I mean, it's Andre Sukumantat shooting takedowns against you. With Malcolm Gordon, it's like better wrestling, I guess, than Sukmantov, but like by how much? Not by a whole lot. So Majeri's been making those improvements. And that Sukmantov fight, you guessed it, a year ago. Now he's still only 24 years old. If someone's going to come in there and expose him, catch the back, get a rear naked choke, maybe it is Gordon. And for this line, Gordon is definitely a live dog, as I mentioned. But I- I'm actually going the other direction. I think Sumajeri spending this time, making those improvements, getting older, filling out his frame, getting strong, getting more experience, striking, he's going to have that striking advantage. He just needs to keep this fight standing right now. I want you to go ahead and do me a little favor here right now, Paul. What You're do you on a computer. Do you have Suma Jerry open up on Tapology? Let's say Tapology. Sure. I well, whatever you have it open. Yep. Is, whatever. Okay. What do you need? Go me ahead to? and click on. Go ahead and click on that Instagram link for me there, right there, Paul. Just right there. All right, I'm clicking. You see that third picture on Instagram there, Paul? Why don't you go ahead and uh, click on that third picture on Instagram? There, what we got here? It's got the uh, Sultan of uh, Spin, I believe. On, okay, okay. On but the you far see that? You left. see? But you see this? You see the note that he messaged? It says, "Work on wrestling and grappling with brothers." You see where it's tagged out of Paul Dagestan, Russia. Ooh. Now Suma Jerry, actually, after with, he uh, beat Andre, Muslim Salikov. Hopefully, he's been put working on his wrestling because that's not usually his go-to. Um, Magomed Khanov, Shamil Magomedov, and some guy Adilov coach. Lots of odds. Yeah. If it's OV, now, if West, it's an OV, it's good enough for me, as, as Cody Sapp. He's says. working on his wrestling in Dagestan. And, and here's actually a really cool, interesting note prior to that. He doesn't post a whole lot on Instagram. But the post before that has him all at American Top Team, right? And a little mm-hmm. bit at Tiger Muay Thai. But he spent a lot of time at American Top Team. Um, when he fought Andre Sukumantath, Andre Sukumantath was fighting out of American Top Team. Sumajeri was still fighting out of China. After he wins this fight, American Top Team approaches him. We like you. Why don't you come down and train here? He does come down and train at American Top Team. And then pandemic hits, and he goes back to goes back home. Spends a little time at Tiger Muay Thai. You see, he spent a little time with Peter Yan. All good stuff. And then ends up over in Russia working with a bunch of you know Dagestanis. It's like the, it, 24 years old. He's, ma- he's doing everything in his power to make those improvements, to get better. 
that's exactly what I want to see out of him. That's exactly what I am expecting to see out of him. I think he takes Malcolm Gordon at inside distance, probably TKO in the second round. Um, but the line, man, I mean, the line's just not very good considering Sumajiri. Yeah, he's still about, young, he's still green. He's just you don't want to bet a guy like that at that big of a, a price tag, right? I mean, this this fight, the over under two and a half rounds opened up at like plus one ten. But like when these when these lines get opened, like the the limits are super super low on this stuff. So pretty much immediately, it got jammed all the way down to like minus one fifty. Essentially, it's minus. You can see it anywhere from minus 175 to minus 190, under two and a half rounds. I think that's probably the best bet on this, on uh, with this fight. That this you fight, do, yeah, because essentially because like minus 240 to go to decision. Yeah. I'd probably just take the under. Hopefully it doesn't get finished in the last like two minutes of the fight. But Malcolm Gordon, I mean, if we're worried about the grappling versus the striking, then hopefully somebody just finds a finish and you're on your way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, you nailed it right there, right? And like I said, it's the tale of two fighters. It's the oldest stylistical clash in the history. But one guy's been submitted in every single one of his pro losses. And the other guy's been finished in all of his pro losses as well, most of the time being by knockout. Come on, man. Is one guy's either going to knock him out or one guy's going to submit him. Like, it, it is what like. it is. And, and I got Sumajiri. I think that he gets that knockout. I think that he's going to be the victor. So, yeah, like you're saying, the under makes a, a lot of sense, obviously. Because, yeah, Maderji by knockout is... That's eh, plus 175. I guess you do, you could do a lot worse than that. Um, if you really feel passionate about that side. But I would still... despite. I mean, he's in Dagestan, but he's doing grappling training with... Uh, with uh what's what's his face again with our boy uh the sultan uh, muslim silikov i mean i don't know how many t- tips the uh, the sultan of spin is giving him on his grappling anyway let's move on to the final fight on the card we got luke sanders taking on nate Manet- nate maness uh, Luke Sanders, minus 145 favorite, uh, Nate Maness plus 125. Watched uh, Munoz versus Maness again last night. And, I mean, he's lucky to come away with the victory in that spot. It was taken down, controlled for much of the fight. Looks, It looks like Luke Saunders, Sanders had a kid about 10 weeks ago. So questions that I have about, I mean, there's always questions with Luke Sanders. He was a guy that... Had a lot of potential, I think, when he came into the UFC and uh, through weird decision-making. and Always uh, weird and decision-making. He, yeah, he, it's tough to trust this guy, especially, like, he may be back here just to get a paycheck and get on him. Like, I mean, we all need to get paid. But I, I didn't really get the sense, like, creeping, up, creeping through his Instagram that he was putting in, like, crazy amounts of hours at the gym. Now, not everyone posts things to Instagram every single day. So maybe he has been putting in a lot of time. But very recently had a child. Um, that is a bit of a concern. But watching, I mean, I feel like talent for talent, Luke Sanders should be able to win this fight, should be able to take Nate Maness down. And and hopefully either find like a submission finish or ground and pound. I do think Luke Sanders is the better overall talent here, but the, my trust, he's hurt. He's broken my heart in the past before. So uh, waiting to hear what you say before I jump in on anything here. Well, but what's what's your take? 
Okay, so if you're an OG fan of the show, then you'll remember that when Luke Sanders signed with the promotion, he was my darling. 31 years old, former RFA champ, he can do it all. I mean, his striking's good, his wrestling's good, his cardio's good, uh, he's aggressive, perfect. Guess that fight with Maximo Blanco, it's his UFC debut. He's a plus 105 underdog, they give me underdog money on my boy right at the hop. And once you know it, he gets a performance bonus with a submission victory over Maximo Blanco. Good times. Then it turned out, in the years following that, Luke Saunders has potentially the most questionable decision-making of all times. Of all times, Paul. Anybody. I'm firm by that. And I'll tell you why. That Yuri Alcantara fight, he almost killed a man that night. He was beating Alcantara so bad, 10-8 first round, smashing this guy in the second round. There was no need to just play this leg lock game and get submitted by that knee bar. And he tapped really quick. It was just like, oh, man. That fight with Andre Sukumantath, he's all over Sukumantath. Why not take him down at this point, by the way? Nope, stands in the pocket, decides to strike with him, gives him the only option he has to win, which is punch his chance to land that punch, and he gets folded by Andre Sukumantath. Bad look. The Pat Williams fight, he didn't look good in that fight, man. He should have been able to go out there and take out Patrick Williams inside the distance. Wasn't able to, got neutralized in a lot of spots, doesn't matter. The Ronnie Yaya fight, we all know what Yaya is going to do. He allows him to have it. But beyond that, saying something like this guy's got the worst decision-making of all times, you can't just talk about just fights. This man was dating Becky Lynch, the WWE superstar. This man, Luke Sanders, broke up with Becky Lynch. Dumps her. She has a net worth of $4 million. Luke Sanders is fucking 35 looking for a paycheck in the UFC against Nate Maness on a curtain jerker. What are you thinking, man? What are you thinking? And so that's the problem with Nate Maness, right? Is that... Could Luke Sanders go there and take him down? Yeah, yeah, but this goes back to uh, well, she's to moved his, on to Seth Rollins skills. now. Maybe something was going on. Maybe maybe things well, were already read, maybe things were anything, already falling apart behind the scenes. If you read anything, okay. First of all, if she's got the option between Seth Rollins and Luke Sanders, sorry, cool hand Luke, you my boy and all, but yeah. Uh, remember, I said her net worth is four. His is nine. Um, it's Rollins. A- a- anyways, beyond that, it's like yeah, yeah. Luke Sanders has got a wrestling advantage for sure, but the Henry Brown fight, okay, he has his way. Doesn't need to wrestle. No takedown attempts against virtually any of these guys. You know, he, the only guy he's ever taken down was Yuri Alcantara one time and then put himself into the knee bar. So he's not, even though he has a wrestling advantage over Nate Maness, he never really uses his wrestling. So what about that striking? Okay, that head and brow fight's good. But the first round, you see he's really like, he's got a lot of ring rust, right? Like his timing's way off. He's, he's finding it difficult to time that right hand. The first round's actually really competitive, but it's a, just a shot-to-bits version of head and brow. Then eventually in the second round, he does line over the right hand, does hurt Hennon, and Hennon falls apart. But Luke Sanders' coaches need to get after him after the first round. Like, dude, you need to get in that pocket. You need to go and force the, the action with this guy. Now you take Luke Sanders. He's been off for almost two full years. It's something like 18 or 19 months off from the sideline. Mm-hmm. He returns now as a, as a 34-year-old. Actually, his birthday is in two weeks. He turns 35 in two weeks. Yep. Uh, he just had a baby 10 weeks ago, as you said. It's just a lot of question marks, and the guy is already just the kind of – all, all the skill in the world, right? But he already – he writes the question marks himself, and now you're adding a bunch of them in that he's having a layoff, and we don't know where he's at. And Name and S arguably Pay attention to the weigh-ins on this Lewis. one. Maybe maybe you'll be able to see. Maybe Luke Sanders comes in looking, looking in great shape. But I wouldn't be shocked to see – I mean, the guy just had a kid 10 weeks ago during a global pandemic. Like I wouldn't be shocked to see him come in in the worst shape that we've seen. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. His cardio is usually pretty good. I mean, it usually holds up. And Neyman S is not – I don't think he's going to catch him and knock him out, and he's definitely not going to submit him. So it's like what is the path to victory for him? But it's that Luke Sanders just stands there and win the pocket with him all night. But if he does do that, then Luke Sanders probably does win this fight. So I, I want to tell you bet Luke Sanders. In fact, I've never told you to not bet Luke Sanders. I've never picked against him. It's that I'm smart enough to realize that, like, he writes a lot of these same issues for himself. Uh, come time when I got to tweet parlays, obviously this fucking guy's going to end up one of some. And uh, he, he's the kind of guy that shits in an apple pie because all of his losses, mind you, um, were an apple pie shit. You know, like every time he loses, it's been a devastating effect for me. His fight with Ronnie Yaya, you know, whatever, at least he was even money there. But his fight with Andre Sukumantath, he was a minus 250 favorite. Um, favorite against Alcantara. Like, I always have faith in this guy. He always shows off his skills, and then eventually something happens. He gets himself submitted, and he gets himself knocked out. Uh, he just makes a bonehead decision at the wrong time. Like, can we really bank that he's not going to do that? Like, no, probably not. Minus 145 is a price tag. Seems good. Seems like fair. You'd want to get it a little bit better, but you're probably not going to. So I got Luke Sanders, and I think that Luke Sanders doesn't put him away. I think that Nate Maness is able to survive. And, uh, and it ends up being a Luke Sanders' decision. Okay, let's uh, jump quickly into a DraftKings breakdown for the card here. I don't know if you have it pulled up in front of you, Cody, or I can uh, yeah, announce the fight it. and the price if you if you want to go that way. But uh, Curtis Blades, 9,300. Derek Lewis, 6,900. I mean, Blades scored, what, 11 takedowns last time out? He's going to yeah, be 14. going to the takedown. He is a very, very viable option up top. Derek Lewis could potentially have, like, GPP sexy kind of appeal, but uh, it's Blades for me. Yeah, Blades, listen, how's the best way to score points in in DraftKings? You want takedowns, you want lots of them. You want, if you're not going to get that quick finish, you want five rounds of just takedown, takedown, takedown. Curtis Blades has that potential. And as far as DraftKings is concerned, Blades against Volkov yielded 144 points. Mm -hmm. So... That's the kind of plays we're looking for. Even though he's $9,300, he's, in my opinion, the safest play on the card, and he's got high potential to score points. So definitely looking at Derek Lewis, or, or Curtis Blades. Derek Lewis, as far as punts go, yeah, like he does knock guys out. But, I mean, I, I just... The I'm volume's really not usually really that. low. Yeah, with Anthony Smith, it's like he gets neutralized a lot, and I expect Devin Clark to try to hold him up a lot of the time. So even though he's 8,500, and he could get both the submission or a knockout, really, uh, or more preferably a knockout, but he could submit him as well, I meant to say. Uh, at 8,500, like it seems fair. I'm just not an Anthony Smith guy. I never really have been. I'm going to try to take it pass on that myself. Devin Clark, Devin Clark's best, best path to victory is uh, cage control. Hold him up against the cage. That doesn't usually yield a whole lot of points. Yep. Josh Parisian at 9,000. Like when you look at his regional show career, he fights a lot of low level guys and they're almost always finishes. Parker Porter, they're usually a lot of later finishes. Uh, Parisian at 9,000. It's just like it's too high of a price tag for this guy. However, the one thing though is like if he does win, you know, I, I could definitely see him scoring a fair amount of points. When you were talking about Dogger Pass earlier, Parker Porter's got a lot of that as well. Like, theoretically, if he is going to win this fight, he is going to get a finish. And at $7,200, getting a guy that's going to uh, score a submission finish or, nice. uh, uh, like, an inside-the-distance victory would actually score considerably well. I but, guess. you know, he scored 8.5 points his last time out against Dawkins getting knocked out in the first round. I just don't really see it going all that better for him. Beza versus Sato, like, with Beza... I don't know. I don't like $8,700 on, on Beza. If I was going to play uh, any of them, Sato is going to be a much cheaper, and Sato's got that big potential to maybe just clip him early like Matt Brown did mm-hmm. and hopefully swarm him and he doesn't, don't let him recover, but I would probably hit more of a pass on that altogether. 
Spike Carlisle, the problem is with only scoring three takedowns and just holding the guy down for the most part is that there's not a whole lot of scrambles. He doesn't want to tire himself or exert himself. So if he doesn't throw a whole lot of strikes and it's mostly just holding the guy down positionally, not a whole lot of points. 7,300 LJO. Bill Aljeo actually, um, he was 7,000 against Lamas and he scored 50 points. And people were happy with that, man. I mean, he still scored 50 points and a loss to Ricardo Lamas. Like, hey, kid, good on you. I think he ended up on a lot of good uh, good lineups at the end Mm -hmm. of the night. Spike Carlisle is not the fighter that that Ricardo Lamas is. And beyond that, Bill Ojeo has not got he's got his UFC debut out of the way. He's got a full camp under his belt now. He's starting to feel himself. He's 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 getting older, he's maturing. Spike could also come in as a better version of himself to not gas out quite as quickly, bank two rounds and win a decision. However, you know Bill Ojeo is gonna fight for your money and fight for your DK points. And for that reason, I really like that 7,300. Ashley Evan Smith, honestly, the way Dumont went down in their last fight. Actually, Evan Smith's worth a look at eight three hundred. Dumont at seventy nine hundred. Like I, I don't, I don't like her nearly as much. I think that it'll probably go to decision if she's going to win. And Ashley Evan Smith mostly just lie on her back. So Fair. Dumont is a no play for me. Ashley Evan Smith, she's probably going to be low key, like low ownership, with at least a potential of getting a finish. I don't love it. I'm just saying at eighty three hundred dollars, someone that could get a finish worth at least a little bit of a look. Martin Day should just have target practice on on Dos Santos. But again, if Dos Santos is able to close that distance and get a hold of him. We've seen Martin Day tires last time out uh, against uh, just, you know, eventually start to fatigue. Maybe it's throwing that many kicks. Maybe it's that work rate. Maybe it's that footwork. Hopefully he shored that up. At $8,800, I don't know that he knocks out Dos Santos, and so I'm not 100% sure that he's worth it. Probably hit a pass on that. Dos Santos, 7,400. If he does going to win, it's going to be more of a grindy style of game plan, so I don't know that that scores uh, as well. Mazzani, 8,600. Ostevich, 7,600. It's going to be a grinding grappling type fight. You hit a pass on that. Kai Kamaka at 9,200. He's got so many decision wins that we really need a knockout for 9,200. But at least to Jonathan Pierce. I mean, he'll probably be low owned if you you play like multiple lineups. But like, it's hard to not want to just pay up for Blades, who seems a lot safer. Um, I mean, with Blades, you just have to avoid getting knocked out, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and not only that, right? When you when you consider the pricing this week, it's like, well, we like Blades, and he's ninety three hundred, rightfully so, right? Kai Kamaka is the second highest priced guy at ninety two hundred dollars, and he doesn't really have that decision cap. Like he's more of a decision guy. But Josh Parisian at nine thousand, like I'll hit a pass on that. Scott Carlisle at eighty nine hundred, like I would, I'm hitting the pass on that. Spike Martin Day at eighty eight hundred, hit a pass on that. Bays at eighty seven hundred, hit a pass on that. And that's what leads us to our next one, Suma Jerry. I'd pay up for him. I think that he's got a really good potential to go out there and get the knockout. If you're not paying up for some of those other high up guys, you've got that money to spend. He is $9,100. But again, I think the path of victory for him is go and get the knockout. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to like wiki cap or, you know, tapology cap or sure dog cap and you look, it's like, eh, you know what? He went to decision with his uh, Andre Sukhmatath. Honestly, rewatch the fight, man. He hurts him. He hurts him bad in the first round. Every round, he's just touching him up. He's got him, you know, beaten, bloodied, battered. Like Sukhmatath's face is a mess by the end of the fight. And in the third round, he catches a kick and he just literally tosses Superman Tat to the ground, gets on top of him and just mauls him with elbows. Like mm-hmm. he's feeling better. He's, he's coming into his own. His cardio really checked out in that fight too. Like if he, if he goes out there and gets that finish, like, yeah, hopefully he's lower ownership. Probably not going to be, but 9,100, as far as DraftKings purposes go, I, I got him. And then uh, Luke Sanders, Nate Maness. Like, I think it's going to go to decision. I think that Luke Sanders is the kind of guy that's only going to go out there and land 60, 70 significant strikes. If he's not going to employ his wrestling in here, he's not going to score points there. There's not going to be a ton of ground transitions. Maness is tough enough, but 
you know, 8,400 is not the worst price tag in the world. So if you're going to take one of them, probably Luke Sanders. Flip side to that, name Maness at 78. If he's going to win, win the decision, probably only scores 70, 80 points in a decision. And that's right at what he's cost. So he's not high ceiling guy, in my opinion. The only way he becomes high ceiling guy is if, you know, Luke Sanders' rock bottom basement ring IQ costs him again. And I don't know that Nate Maness has got to capitalize on that. So uh, uh, Luke Sanders is the play there. But as far as DraftKings go, like, eh, it's mid-range. If you can afford Sanders, maybe maybe, maybe slot him in. All right, we're just about out of time. But before we go, hit him with the Pogi Rob parlay for all the people asking. If you guys don't know by now, I just said it out loud. So now we know we're not, that you're not listening to the show. Hit him with the PRP. Yeah, okay. And then just the real quick backdrop there is that shout out to Pogi Rob, you know, longtime friend and fan of the show. But uh, yeah, I mean, we know him in real life. He's a good guy. I won't divulge his last name because, you know, it's the day of the internet. But uh, Rob's a super good dude. And it's just like an ongoing joke, Pogi Rob. Like, that's the joke. Rob is really good with numbers. He's, he's a gambler as well. I don't, maybe he works a job. I don't know. So the, job, the joke would be, how does this guy have money and he doesn't have a job? Well, he must be collecting Pogi. Gambling, Pogi. Just a joke, whatever. If you know Rob, super good guy. It says right in his Twitter description, never bid on Pogi. But, you um, see, but that's but the joke. So the I, joke so the joke. I will become, add. I will yeah. add. He hasn't made all of his money by betting on the PRP, which I don't believe is ever him. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying gambling like he follows our show's picks and he's made a bunch of money. Like That's why I say he's good with numbers. Like He runs a really good streaming operation. I know he's a sharp on really other numbers. He's good at like getting even uh, plus money both sides, you know, like hitting a line beforehand and then hitting the line once it goes the other way, like bankroll management, like, you know what I mean? And, and people on Pogi have excellent bankroll management because like you're living on a fixed income, right? Like you got to be really good with it. So the joke is the PRP is Pogi Roll Parlay is a full card parlay because you put a couple bucks on it and if it hits, you're off Pogi, baby. It pays big. That's what we're looking for. We're riding Pogi. We're looking, some people like to bet and bet $100 to win $100, right? You see a lot of these good cappers that'll offer two plays on the whole card, right? And at the end of the night, hey, we want a unit. We want two units. Well, for them, a unit might be $100, so they've won $100, $200. But a lot of guys are playing a unit is 1% of your bankroll. Their bankroll is only $100, so one unit is a dollar. So at the end of the night, you won $2, or potentially you won $3. Was, was that worth it? Was that a good time? Like, So you bet the whole $100. Well, that's not a unit. You just bet a 100-unit play by bankroll management standards. It's confusing. But that's what it's supposed to be, right? So at least with the PRP, if you're a guy that has a, a $100 bankroll, put a dollar or two on the PRP. And if it hits, a couple thousand, baby. Like we're chasing that big value, a couple hundred. Whatever whatever we get it at that week, depending on the amount of underdogs and the amount of even money plays and favorites and this and that, like different price every week. But that's what it is. The Pogi Rob Parlay, we hit this bitch, we get off Pogi. That's the joke. It's obviously a joke. But uh, in my lifetime, I've hit three PRPs. And I've been doing this for six years. So I'm not going to lie. It's like a once every other year thing. But you're not betting big money on the PRP. And trust me, when it does hit, it's a glorious feeling. It really is. Are so we I'm counting not Bellator? And... Are we counting Bellator for no, these No, no, no. I'm talking, U I'm talking UFC, and it has to be more than 10 fights, right? Because we have gotten some, like, shorter fight offerings. And that's the thing with Bellator. Like, I've hit 7, 8, 1 PRPs. Yeah. LFA will hit PRPs. PRP on those cards. I, I mean... To hit that big, juicy 100 to 1, 200 to 1, it's going to have to be a UFC card. And again, have hit three of them over a six-year period. Now, you look at the top bracket of the, the parlay. You look at the second bracket. You know, we do it in stages. Those are obviously a lot safer, but you, you get them all eventually. It's going to happen, and uh, we're going to will it into existence. I'm confident in that. Is this the card? <laughs> Whoa, we would need some bounces if we were to go perfect. 
on a this card. But yeah. again, crazier shit has happened. We do get good bounces here and there. We've gotten bad bounces here and there. Hopefully, this is a good week to get back in the win column. And uh, yeah, excited to do so. So to hit you with the PRP, we're going to go with Curtis Blades. We're going to go with Anthony Smith. We're going to go with Josh Parisen. We're going to go with Miguel Beza. Bill LJ would be dog number one. Um, I'm going to take Norma Dumont. That's going to be dog number two. I know, I know. I know. I know. Martin Day, Gina Mazzani, Kay Kamaka, Suma Jerry, Luke Maness. So we've got, or Luke's, Luke Maness. Luke, Luke Sanders. Sanders. So we've got, we've got two underdogs on this card. One of them, I feel, I feel that Bill will at least fight for that stat. He will give his best account of himself. I can't ask any more than that. The second one, I'm completely just taking that shot in the dark that Dumont is making those improvements. Her grappling's a little bit better, and it seems like she's been spending a lot of time on her striking. As you mentioned, Sonda background might just be enough to get the job done in a low-level spot like this. So uh, that's all she wrote for this week, ladies and gentlemen. That is all she wrote for all of us this week. Want to thank Matt Best behind the scenes for doing all the sweet cuts. Want to thank Cody Safdick for gracing us with his knowledge as always for Cody and Matt I'm Paul saying goodbye and good luck Everyone's